Hello there. Welcome to Zoned Out, the podcast where we interrogate the capitalist city and imagine how the socialist city can replace it. It's Rin and Josh, as per the new usual. Hey there. We've got kind of a weird episode today. It feels weird. Josh and I are going to be reviewing the American Planning Association's 2024 trend report for planners. Before we get into that, though, a reminder that there is still an active genocide being committed by the IDF in Gaza that the United States and other Western countries are supporting. And I know this is where the vast majority of listeners of this show are from. If you haven't done something today to show support for a ceasefire or help the Gaza people in some way, make sure to do that. Chances are there are people organizing in your community that you can link up with. You can also share information on social media, contact your representatives, donate to a reliable aid group, attend a protest, or something else. This is a moment that people will look back on and wonder how we let this happen. After you've done something for Gaza, if you would like to contribute to Zoned Out, you can join the Patreon for as little as $2 per month, where you'll get access to bonus episodes, early access to public episodes, access to live streams. The February live stream was a lot of fun. Podcast editor extraordinaire Seaway Jerk joined the stream for some Super Smash Bros. Melee. The streams are viewer-driven, ultimately, so if you're a patron who wants to see something specific on a stream, please just let me know. To put a finer point on it, in coming back to the podcast, I have set a timeline for myself to see if it can become financially sustainable to continue. If by fall of 2025 it is not at least growing toward that goal, then I'm going to put the podcast on an indefinite hiatus and most likely go to grad school. I genuinely love doing the podcast and I'm going to give it everything I can during the next year and a half. I truly have high hopes for Zoned Out if it can grow into something financially sustainable. More frequent episodes, more audio essays, travel logs, more live streams, tours, even, I don't know, a sort of nebulous city of the month episode idea that I'm kind of trying to add shape to right now. Kind of like I used to do on YouTube and Snapchat way back in the day for the real old heads who have been following me on like all this time. Uh, and perhaps over the long term, even bigger things beyond media and podcasting, but I'm not going to overpromise or speculate on that at this point. Honestly, I'd probably even do a face reveal if I got to do the podcast even part-time. Maybe. We'll see. All this to say, I really do want this to work, but there is a time limit on my ability to continue doing it in my free time. I don't run ads and you won't hear a Manscaped spot on this podcast either, so it just boils down to listener funding. I don't even think Manscaped would want to advertise on Zoned Out. It'd be really funny if they did, though. Regardless, if you're able to join the Patreon, I would sincerely appreciate it. If you're not, no worries. Sharing on social media is always appreciated. Either way, you're helping this podcast grow into something more robust and helping get an alternative vision of the city out into the world. To everybody who has contributed to this podcast in the past or is currently contributing now, I sincerely thank you for your support. We want to be able to bring you more media like the media we make, and you can help make that happen with a Patreon subscription. Social media links are in the description. Now let's get into the episode. Okay. So we're reading the 2024 American Planning Association Trend Report for Planners. They started putting these back out in 2022, and we were originally thinking about reviewing the 2023 report, but the night we met to plan out this episode, the 2024 trend report dropped. The APA was like, well, if you're going to be petty little bastards, at least be current about it. <laughs> so, Josh, what is the APA? The APA is... The American Planning Association. It's like a professional organization. It holds a particular credential that most planners seek out around the middle of their career called the American Institute of Certified Planners. Basically, it's proof that you're of a higher caliber planner. You take a test, um, and the APA is the sort of fundraising lobbying arm. I would say that 
the majority of people who are in the APA are seeking AICP. So, you know, I don't think that they're like two separate entities in any way. But yeah, basically the APA is supposed to guide the discussion. They're supposed to be relevant. <laughs> um, and they're supposed to lobby for better planning principles. But as we'll see today, they don't always follow through on that. Yeah, they do have like a a whole research wing, sort of. They partner with a lot of like think tanks. And I mean, I imagine we could just go on forever just selecting random APA reports and stuff and, and reviewing them. But I think the trend report is a good window into kind of... They're kooky minds. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, there's some strange stuff uh, here for sure. The way the APA intersects with my life more than anything, honestly, is just as a job board, too. Yes. Yeah, they have a national job board. Yeah. And then, like, I think 47 regional chapters on top of that with their own job boards. And have you ever been to, like, a, an APA convention, like a regional one? No, I got strep throat the last time <laughs> I was supposed to go, which really sucked, actually. I was kind of, you know, it's really just an excuse to, like, meet with your professional friends mm -hmm. um that's i guess the one perk of being in apa in my opinion but yeah i got strep throat the last time i was going to the virginia chapter and i haven't really considered it since for the record you have to join a state chapter and you have to pay for it that's true they act like it's not a part of the membership dues but it's also required that you join um it's an extra hundred dollars or something i went to the Nebraska Iowa APA conferences when I was in college because my planning program would cover the cost of going I think or it would mm -hmm. be like supplemented or I don't know it's cheaper for students to go yeah so that was like the only reason I don't know if there are any listeners from Sioux City Iowa listening I'm sorry but I don't know that I would have gone to Sioux City otherwise <laughs> you gotta cut that out somebody's gonna be hurt yeah I don't know I should probably maintain a neutral position on Sioux City. <laughs> we all should. No, there's like a really messed up statue in Sioux City. Honestly, uh, um, I don't remember exactly what it said, but it, it's like on the top of this hill uh, with like a very nice view out to the west. And it's one of like the European settlers from the area. Oh, no. and it's like a quote from this guy. I think he was like a reverend. And he was basically saying that like the light of God and civilization will watch like wash over untamed west or whatever or something like that like mm. that was the spirit of it anyway mm. <laughs> yeah it was, it's a bizarre town yeah that's horrible that's really gross anyway uh somebody from sioux city prove me wrong or tear down the statue yeah that too anyway the apa does not put out these reports alone like i said before they do partner with various think tanks and for their annual trend report they do it in partnership with the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy. I looked into the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy, and I'm sure there's a deep dive to be done about them. For our purposes, all you really need to know is that they're Georges. We talked a bit about Henry George last year during the Community Land Trust episode, so you can listen to that again if you want. The guy the Lincoln Institute is named after was the vice presidential nominee for the 2024 Commonwealth Land Party presidential ticket which used to be known as the single tax party because their one issue was to get rid of all taxes except for a land value tax. This is a cult. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> These people. Um, I think it takes a, a certain type of person to just go all in on one specific yeah. type of tax. One issue. Yeah. Like, yeah, and then like run for president on that one policy point. I don't know. The thing about like, no, you know what? We're not talking about Georges uh, anymore. No, we can, just, can move on. We don't have to do this. Yeah. Not today. Look them up if <laughs> uh, you don't know what Georges are, or like what the philosophy is. But anyway, yeah, they didn't gain much traction as a party. But I will say for any Iowa State students or alumni listening, the VP nominee for the 2020 single tax party ticket was one Carrie Chapman Cat. If you know, you know. So Josh, what are your overall thoughts on this report? I think it's silly. Uh, generally, I think it's a very silly report, but it takes itself seriously. If you're looking for 
inspiration or solutions or ideas, you're not going to find it in the report. You know, I don't know if that's inherent to a trend report. Maybe, maybe a trend report really is just reporting on what's going on. But at the same time, these the things that they've highlighted are odd, and I think just generally not relevant to the practice. What did you think about it? Yeah, I would agree with that. In a trend report of any kind, you probably can't expect like super in-depth analysis of uh, any one particular issue. And the thing is, is that like, the APA has more in-depth reports, a lot of which like if you're not a member, you have to pay to access. I don't know. It's uh, strange, I guess, like sometimes this trend report references those like more fleshed out reports and then other times it just kind of feels like picking things to put in just to put them in definitely like just kind of like padding out space and my overall feeling honestly is that like you don't have to like talk about everything you know sometimes like the right thing to do i guess is just like to say well the same problems that were happening last year are still happening this year uh because they weren't solved yeah you know i you don't have to talk about everything, but I think in the APA trend report, everything should be about planning, right? Yes, yeah. <laughs> they veer off the path the entire time. It's almost as if they don't want to talk about planning. They wanted to talk about anything else. Yeah. And uh, we'll talk more about kind of, I don't know, the moments that like the APA really veers off road in this uh, trend <laughs> report in the bonus episode where they talk about like space planning and like synthetic meat and like outer space. Yeah. Our, sorry, <laughs> outer space, like Mars colonies, that sort of thing. But for now, in this first part of the episode, we're going to focus on things that are more germane to planning as we commonly understand it. So yeah, we're not going to be reviewing the entire thing, by the way. The way we're going to do this is we're going to kind of go through each section that we've selected as something that we have something to say, because there are whole sections that we're not going to touch in either episode. Uh, and then we're not going to be reading this verbatim because that would take like an entire day. We're just going to kind of look at the topics and maybe highlight a few quotes here and there. But otherwise, the topics are just going to offer jumping off points about the topics themselves and how the APA approaches them. Let's do it. One thing at the top of the report, I did kind of find funny is just like on page nine, just the the title of this section is APA's trend universe. <laughs> and I just really love a cinematic universe. <laughs> I definitely see the vision here. Like I'm looking forward to APA trend universe spinoff, white papers, conference series, and trading card games. I think I'll pass to be honest with you. <laughs> I think I'll stay out of this universe. You aren't ready for like APA infinity wars. <laughs> I'm not. They assemble the 47 chapters to fight, like, I don't know, who would they even fight? Lewis Mumford or... They do not have an enemy. <laughs> Robert Moses, that's who they'll... Robert they'll Moses. Fight. Yeah. No, you're right, though. The APA goes to great lengths to try not to have an enemy in this report. Okay, so the first section that we're actually going to take into here is their climate change section. I feel like the APA in this section does a fairly good job of at least... Impressing upon the reader the urgency of climate change, it's pretty like uncontroversial at this point to just note how intense weather events are happening uh, more frequently and like how a lot of people are suffering because of it. I think where the APA falls flat, and this is a theme throughout the report, is kind of offering, I don't know, the big solutions, I guess, that are necessary. You know, like they always kind of like can do a, a fairly decent job on a topic like this at describing the problem, but then when it comes to prescriptions for it, it's like a bit of a mixed bag, I guess. Like, I don't want to say that it's devoid of solutions here. I think this is one of the sections that they do better on than others. Yeah, they'll only talk about things that are happening. And I know there's a lot of value in that. Like, there's a lot of value to give an example in the real world. But, you know, there's also like... A large body of research or things that are going to be attempted that might be better examples. 
instead what you get is just like a couple things here and there across the United States, like whatever they could like find. Uh, and then they just tack it on at the end. Yeah. Throughout the entire report, there are links, like hyperlinks to all sorts of different things. I didn't click on every single one, but I clicked on quite a few. And what I found is that some of the time, the point that they're making is not even a bad point, but then the thing that they hyperlink to either won't say what they're saying, or it's just like a strange poll, like some sort of website post rather than like an academic article or even mm -hmm. one of their own more in-depth reports that they write. And I think we like, you see that in the climate change section where at the end, when they talk about declines in air quality, one of the solutions that they bring up is Bloomberg Philanthropy's Breathe Cities initiative. And that's all well and good, except that like any critical eye would note that like Michael Bloomberg's assets are at least as soon as 2020, like still being invested in fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. And Bloomberg is on record as uh, supporting fracking. It's just kind of, I think, like in this report specifically, a somewhat shallow level of analysis or a lack of a critical eye that makes it feel all over the place and like a collection of sort of random events. Right. Exactly. Another thing that sticks out to me in this section near the start is they talk about Hawaii. Hawaii is increasingly grappling with severe flooding, wildfires, biodiversity loss, extreme heat, and poor air and water quality. Hawaii, I feel like, kind of comes up a couple times as a useful point of conversation. And I'll just say, like, keep in mind for now the environmental challenges that Hawaii is facing. Uh, and at the same time, how the APA kind of brings up other actions happening in Hawaii. It's, I'm just, I'm just going to call that out for now. And then the last thing that stuck out to me in this section is just this section where they say some innovations and experimentation are on the horizon. In Spain, Madrid is experimenting with wind gardens to cool down parts of the city by up to four degrees Celsius. A coalition of U.S. cities is working to roll out innovative data analysis tools to identify and quickly remedy major heat impacts. And in Switzerland, Lake Geneva is being tapped as a means to actively cool buildings. And this was the first section that like set me off into writing like three paragraphs worth of notes. And then I, yeah, I don't know. I blacked out and then I woke up <laughs> with like the entire side of my PDF, like notes section, just full of text. And I thought about it and it's just like the thing that set me off here is just that I feel like this section kind of shows the oscillations between flashy one-off projects and some more substantive mundane solutions like sandwich in between lake geneva and wind gardens is u.s cities banding together on data analysis to address like heat impacts like if you look into the wind gardens and the lake geneva thing like the wind garden in, in madrid that's awesome like it looks really cool it's based on wind towers from middle eastern cities that have been built for centuries as a great way to like pull cooler air from higher uh, elevations down to the street level. This strikes me as like a less flashy, but like in some ways seemingly more actionable solution to be applied in more places where like large wind gardens are not an option. But I don't know, it doesn't have like the same pizzazz to it. <laughs> and then the Lake Geneva thing has been happening since 2004. That's another thing that happens here where I don't know how they identify something as like a 2024 trend because right. a lot of i don't want to say a lot of but it's happened more than once in this report where i'll click on a hyperlink and it'll reference something that was happening at least a few years in the past yeah i think it's whatever um the lincoln institute had their tabs open for i guess um do you have any other thoughts on the climate change section josh uh not really i think they kind of just throw a bunch of links at you. For you to like really recommend addressing climate change, you have to be bold. Uh, you have to have a point of view. And I, I would say the APA does not. Okay, so the next section we're going to talk about is called Housing Challenges and Solutions, which 
I have a feeling this is where most people will go immediately when they open it. The APA has a thing called the Housing Supply Accelerator. I called it a thing. It's more of like a, I don't know, a web page, I guess. But it's a, it's a bunch of ideas that they have that would increase the supply of market rate housing. Typical things like changing zoning, removing regulations, uh, permitting processes, things like that. So they put that up front, and the chapter is very much oriented around their housing supply accelerator ideology they've already laid out. The chapter starts with them talking about a housing deficit of 3.9 million units, which is a link to a report. And the report is talking about how there is an influx of people trying to move to the suburbs, and that because we haven't really built a massive suburban development since the uh, housing crash, we're seeing like a lack of supply. Uh, And I think that's interesting to put that up front because the APA doesn't seem to want to encourage that sort of development. I think they very openly want multifamily development to continue, uh, especially in the suburbs. But if you read the report, it makes it sound like people are seeking single-family detached homes. And then, Ren, I know you liked this quote, uh, because the APA cannot have an enemy and is also just generally uh, friendly to developers, they wrote that developers are anticipating a major drought in affordable housing production by 2025, primarily due to soaring costs and rising interest rates. I mean, to me, this is like the whole ballgame right here. Mm -hmm. Like this sentence is the case for treating housing like a public utility. It is a direct admission from the private sector, from developers, that they are not able to meet the moment. If we take them seriously at that, then the state needs to step in and build some housing. It just strikes me as bizarre that, you know, to bring up something so stark as like an admission that developers are not able to solve this crisis, that they are unable to meet the moment. And then the solutions offered later on, the perspective offered later on is one that still routes housing production through private developers. Mm -hmm. So are we serious about solving the problem or not? Yeah, because it it almost feels like they're building the case you just laid out because in the next uh the next section they talk about how there's a shortage of 7.3 million rental homes for those with very low or extremely low incomes and i don't think it's just my belief i know you share this belief but i <laughs> i think it's a fact that the only way to address extremely low incomes is through subsidy uh through ideally public housing um, because those those incomes will never be profitable. Uh, the private market is not interested in extremely low income development, and so like that plus the anticipated drought, it's it just seems to be without them realizing it, they're admitting that a market based strategy is not producing the supply types that we need. Yeah, I agree completely. It feels like. Whenever we talk about low or no income households or people and how to house them, like the neoliberal solution is always really roundabout and has to take a while. Like it's filtering, which can take decades to work out if it even works out as a viable strategy. Or it's, well, we need to raise incomes over time or like just kind of all of these auxiliary strategies to get everybody to a point where they can meet the standards of the private sector and what it is demanding, rather than the other way around of acknowledging that we have significant portion of the population that falls outside of what the private sector is willing to provide in terms of housing, without subsidy anyway, and that the simplest course of action of making sure that everybody is housed is just to make sure that there's enough housing Uh, That doesn't require you to have a specific income to live there. Like, I think we should have an abundance of no-income housing, and that that should just be a basic right. Absolutely. Well, you're not going to like their recommendations. Shocker. 
So they recommend, uh, you've heard them all before, there's nothing surprising here, but accessory dwelling units, faith-based organizations developing on their own land, so like a church building apartments on its grounds, gentle density, which means just like a stepping up of density around a lower density area, and then uh, eliminating parking minimums, which they always throw out as like a solution to the housing crisis. I don't want to get too deep into that. I'm not against eliminating parking minimums, but developers will build the parking they need. We don't really live in a society where people aren't going to drive just because there's not a parking spot. They'll just move somewhere else or not pick that building. A shift in transportation has to come from transportation. It's not going to be by eliminating parking minimums. And then it talks about homelessness. This is the only time in the whole report it talks about homelessness. Um, It talks about how there's over 600,000 unhoused individuals. And, of course, the APA's only solution is change zoning laws, allow multifamily buildings, private development, and then, shockingly, to take the approach of building tent villages and tiny homes. I think it's totally unacceptable for the National Organization for Planning to recommend these non-solutions to homelessness, especially when, and this is my biggest contention with the APA, they refuse to advocate for an expansion of public housing. Like, they are absolutely not interested in pushing forward laws, even though they can lobby, pushing forward bills that would repeal Faircloth or would expand HUD's budget. They instead just recommend things like tent villages, tiny homes. Yeah, no, I mean, the reading this report, like, I wrote a note that is just like, literally anything but public housing, literally anything but public housing. Mm-hmm. Please don't make us build public housing. <laughs> don't make us talk about public housing. And I think at a certain point, the absurdity of that line of thinking leads you to licensed tent villages as a strategy that you as like an organization, like you were saying, the National Planning Organization, are advocating for. I just think that is like a complete abrogation of responsibility. Absolutely. Tent villages, sure, fine. It's nice that they can be licensed so they don't get cleared out by cops. But that is at most like a temporary emergency measure on the way to actually permanent housing. Yeah. In a report like this or any other APA report, there's no reason not to just shoot for the moon. It's not even shooting for the moon. It's a very actionable thing to build public housing. It's just a deliberate decision not to talk about it. Yeah. And, and you describe them as emergency situations. The APA, to quote them, describes them as viable solutions to homelessness. This is probably the most objectionable section in my mind. Uh, the last thing I want to highlight in this chapter is they talk about rising immigration and refugees coming to America, and they paint xenophobic people, uh, people who are opposed to immigrants, they paint them as NIMBYs. And I think this is a very dangerous line of thought. In my first YouTube video, which is called Don't Fall Down the Yimby Pipeline, I spent a good deal of time explaining why the concepts of NIMBY and YIMBY are not useful. I think it's clear in associating xenophobia with NIMBYism that the word doesn't really mean anything. And there's a danger in that, that in collapsing all of the enemies to development, whether it's because they are racists and they don't want immigrants in their community, or it's because they are being displaced and they don't want luxury apartments in their neighborhood, the APA is basically saying these are the same group. These are together. They have the same ideology. They're a unified block. They'll vote together. And I think that's just a really uh, irresponsible take. You're right. It makes what it means to be a NIMBY rather vague. And then I also think it like dilutes the root causes for reactionary NIMBYism. Like, I think both of us, you know, take issue about the idea of like a left, uh, a left-wing NIMBY to begin with. But 
as far as like a term that gets lobbed at left-wingers who are anti-displacement, the actual like reactionary nimbyism that is fueled by xenophobia and classism and racism, like nimby as a word is only useful in like a specific geographic context. But the xenophobia that we're seeing like in a Staten Island council meeting is the same xenophobia that is prompting a confrontation between the federal government and the state of Texas over the border. Yeah, just use nimbyism so casually here undermines the underlying issues that drive nimbyism to begin with. Exactly. Oh, there is actually one more thing in this section. They discuss expanding government initiatives, but they don't mean public housing. It's kind of vague, but I believe that they're generally talking about uh, zoning, tax breaks, and bypassing environmental review. Ren mentioned earlier that Hawaii comes up a lot, and having this whole chapter that highlights Hawaii's environmental challenges in the housing chapter, they talk about how if you build homes, you can bypass environmental regulations or environmental review. I just don't see these things as something to champion. No, I mean, in the subsection title of expanding government initiatives to address the housing crisis is misleading because this is all just about getting government out of the way to allow right. for more development. Yeah, it's deregulation. Yeah, and that like Hawaii policy. It also gets back to like the diminished role of the planner, uh, even more so because like it creates a 22 person state level council that takes over a lot of the development review work um, and land use work that would normally done by city and county planners. And, and these are, we learn all this just by clicking the links that they include, you know, and, and it just feels like just bizarre, you know, like the, the contradictions in the report and the things that they bring up as seemingly positive things like. The own links that they provide, like I think, kind of paint them in a different light. Yeah. Let's uh, let's go ahead and move on here and touch on another section in the report: political polarization and societal division. I don't know. I I don't want to dwell too long on this section. I do just want to say that the topic of political polarization itself, I think, always gets to me just a little bit because. If you analyze the trends in American politics over the years, it's really kind of you have a right wing that is getting more extreme. And you see this going all the way back to like the John Birch Society, Barry Goldwater, and like this hyper reactionary rightward fringe of the conservative movement taking over the Republican Party. And then you have the Democratic Party like hollowing out its its labor base and like left-wing base and moving to the right as well. And that is how political polarization is avoided when you have a right wing that is getting more and more extreme, when you have like two political parties and you have both of them moving to the right, one following the other, the Democrats following the Republicans. And my argument would be to that, that it is in fact good to be polarized against the extreme right. Sure. That polarization in itself is not a bad thing if what you are polarized against, if what you are setting yourself up in opposition to, is just the most rancid political program you can imagine, which is what like the Republican Party and the far right are putting forward right. every day. So I am happy to be polarized in this moment if that is what it means to be polarized against. That said, that is the trend of like Republicans moving towards a poll in particular, much more than the Democrats. But you know, I, I think everything I know about the APA, I feel like they, they didn't really call it out in the chapter, but I do think that they would include people like you and me as like the loss of social cohesion, like people who would protest or people who would take like a openly anti-capitalist stance, I think that they would, I think the APA would include them in their declining social cohesion. Yeah. I don't even see necessarily like a both sizing in this section, honestly, because they do have the little section about state preemption of local progressive actions, which they do call out, I think, as like generally a bad thing, you know, talking about, I guess, Texas specifically. But you're right. Only to a point are they willing to kind of set themselves up in opposition to a, a conservative extreme. Mm -hmm. 
And at the same time, it's like at the same time that they're calling out Texas about state level preemption of local legislation, they also included Hawaii at the state level preempting local and county planning agencies. And California. And California too. Again, there's not, I I think that the, the point here is that there's not a political point of view that is well fleshed out. But yeah, overall, I don't know. I feel like I just had to get my diatribe in about like polarization and how this idea that polarization is inherently bad. It's like, I don't seek to be just contentious with no reason, but we have a movement in this country that is well worth being polarized against. Let's move on to persisting transportation inequities. Okay, I took this chapter. It's not bad. It's not bad. I think I think the APA does well with transportation. I think transportation oftentimes can be a no-brainer, especially w- regarding safety. They have like a lot of recommendations about, you know, going car-free. I think it was very appropriate how they presented it because I guess I don't want to talk about the impacts of like going car-free because I wouldn't ever shut up, but I think they highlighted some, a couple interesting things. This is not a recommendation to read this, but um, it's it's appropriate. And they put in the parking minimums thing into the transportation section, which again I'm not opposed to. I think that you should at least make them fit the project, but uh, I just I really don't see how that's going to cause a big shift. But why I like this chapter, why I'm okay with this chapter, is it is the only time, I think, in the entire report where they say that we need to basically demand that the federal government provides more funding for public transit. And I completely agree with that. I think that if we want to have this mode shift to both save the planet, uh, to make people's lives easier without a car, we have to have a bigger pot. You know, we have to have a lot more funding. You don't get a bunch of writers, make money, and then expand the system. You have to expand the system first. So I was really pleased to see that. And then uh, just one interesting thing I had never thought of that they brought up was that in Norway, which has the highest rate of electric vehicle ownership, they are also increasing car ownership generally. So there's this correlation of like increasing electric vehicle availability might also be increasing car ownership, which is not ideal. But I will also say there's nothing inherent about electric vehicles that creates a car-free future. So it's not, it's not, I guess, shocking, but I wouldn't have thought that it would increase, especially in a country like Norway. Yeah. I thought that was a really interesting section too. And I think overall they did a good job in this section. One point. Yes. Let's talk about youth. Yes. Let us move on now to the value of youth. I didn't realize it was called that until this moment. This section was uh, written by the woman from Titanic. Another little diatribe that I have to start with. So I'm 27 and I still hear, although I'm starting to age out of it, but I still hear that my generation is going to be the ones to fix all of the problems and the older generations caused all those problems and we're going to have to clean up after them. I hear this from people of older generations. And it's always bugged me to hear that because I always just think, well, you're still alive. You could also be part of the solution, you know? (laughs) And hearing that just always kind of makes me feel like people are just saying like, okay, you deal with it now. And as long as I'm still alive, I'm going to keep doing what I've been doing. Uh, Cause that's my generation's thing, but your generation's things, you guys, you guys care about things. Yeah. Here, here are no tools or no power, uh, but you can fix it. Yeah. And that's the thing is like, there's nothing inherent to youth. I think generally speaking that makes young people push towards like radical change just because they're young is the fact that like young people today are materially worse off than mm-hmm. certainly young people of previous generations in this country but anybody of any age in in situations where they are worse off materially 
they're, it's more likely for them to develop radical politics or to push for bigger change because it's in your self-interest to do that. So the idea that like we can just wait on young people to kind of fix things, like I think is, in my view, more of conscious or not a veiled way of saying like, well, young people are in such terrible conditions that they'll just inevitably like do something about things, which like, I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm very heartened by all of the work of young people. Certainly, yeah. I don't want to diminish the work of young people at all. Like, but I just, I don't know. My point is that it's like, it's not so much youth, like a youthful optimism that drives things. Uh, I think the material goes a long way to explaining why young people in particular often are so geared towards uh, progressive politics. Yeah. And this is not to dismiss the youth in any way, but there are a lot of people who are trying to change the world of all ages. Yeah. I think it's kind of silly to group young people as like, okay, we'll listen to you, but we're not going to listen to the 40 year olds, the 50 year olds who are saying the same thing. Yeah. Just like, what does it mean if, if you just keep telling a group of people like, oh, you, you'll be the change. And then by the time they're 30, it's, there's no change. It's the same. This chapter has a lot of issues, yeah. <laughs> um, but it just feels very disingenuous generally. Speaking of issues, let's talk about uh, with decolonizing the future. Oh, God. Look, we've talked about land back on this podcast, you know, the idea of decolonization, very much something that this podcast is in support of. I'm not an authority on it. I don't claim to be. But I will say, I think I know enough to recognize that the way decolonization is brought up in this chapter, it's, it's weird. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's it, they didn't read anything. They did not, they didn't even read their own link, which explains it pretty well. Yeah, but even that link, like, is, it's a web post, you know, like uh, something that was originally a Medium post. And oh, sure. It's, it's not that. There's nothing there. Like, I, like even, yeah, that link talks about indigenous people and some things that I think actually get more to like concrete understanding of what decolonization is. But really, they, they say that there's like a trend towards this idea of decolonizing the future. And that link is actually, I think, very important in this idea of decolonizing the future, because as far as I can tell, it comes from this website called The Forum for the Future. And it seems like they try to put every concept into the idea of like, what does this mean if we orient it towards the future? Mm -hmm. Which like, fair enough. If you're foreign for the future, that's how you're going to think. But it seems more like an organization or a group dedicated to a specific uh, lens through which to view things. Taking a broader word, like they say this themselves, you know, like in the post that they're taking the word decolonization and brainstorming what it means to say decolonize the future. And still, the EPA here uh, in the trend report, all they get from that is just that we need to involve young people in engagement, engaging the youth. Assimilate the youth. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I, I just, I struggle to understand why, why bring up decolonization if you're going to bring it up in the most incomplete way possible. Yeah. The note I wrote for this paragraph was, the APA does not understand what decolonizing the future means because it would certainly include the death of them as an institution. Yeah. <laughs> the APA is a, they hold these old ideas in these old ways and they're, it's, it's very colonial and there is no place for the APA whatsoever in a decolonized future. Like that, that would be my first point if I had to brainstorm about planning in the future is there is no APA. There's no lobby organization that is buddied up with developers, certainly. No, as always, my advice here, if you want a good starting point on the topic of decolonization, on the topic of land back, read the Red Deal, go to the Red Nation's website. They're an excellent resource uh, for learning more about this topic. Don't go to the American Planning Association <laughs> or the Lincoln Institute for Land Policy. No. So do you want to talk now about job evolution and revolution? Let's do it. So the APA is acknowledging in this chapter that there is a growing labor movement, and they speak very positively of it. But 
they do this thing where they pull planners out of it. Their recommendations or their their conclusions on the labor movement are that planners need to figure out how to respond to it. It's not that planners should be a part of it, but that we are like a separate entity that just observes the world and then reacts to it. And I find that really disturbing. So I'm not in a labor union myself. I work for the private sector, uh, which could be unionized, but we're not. Uh, But Ren, I know that you have been a planner and in a union. So would you like to explain your experience? Yeah, not in my current job. Now I just have an employee association. Public sector unions are not allowed in my state, uh, for the most part, unless uh, you're police, fire, or in the trades. But I used to have a union, and honestly, it was kind of a mixed bag in terms of my experience. Like, ultimately, the point that I think is worth driving home here is that, like, in this section, I ask the question here, does the APA understand planners as laborers as well? Or are we managers of laborers? And perhaps to some degree, both are true. But I think certainly there is labor in being uh, a planner, no doubt. And, you know, you don't really see any mention here from the APA that planners should unionize themselves to fight for better working conditions, higher pay, you know, better benefits. You and I, at the end of the bonus episode last month, talked a little bit about the differences between the public and private sector. And like, I think in both instances, you and I would find good cause to have unions to achieve different goals. Sure. And, but but there's, there's no real talk here about organized labor for planners or public servants. It's just another thing that gets brought up as, well, this is happening, you know? Yeah, I think the APA like kind of reveals itself as a an anti-union, not anti-union, not against unions, but they're like the opposite of one. We're grouped together as workers, but under the will of the APA, we're not we don't decide what the APA is. They decide and then they push that down onto us. And I think that's why the rest of the chapter uh talks about how AI replacement of planning tasks will be good. I don't want to be a Luddite. I think I'm sure I'm sure there are applications where AI will be helpful, but this is just not something a union would ever say. I don't think that we should lean into replacing our duties with AI. I, I don't see how that could benefit the profession in any way. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The APA doesn't explicitly say that they're against unionization for planners here, but they certainly don't make any effort to connect the fights to manage the integration of AI into like the creative professions, for example, with the WGA strikes last year. In fact, a lot of what is actually in here is about new skills that planners need to acquire to keep up with everything, including understanding new technologies, new AI uh, developments, all of that. And there's no mention of the idea that it's okay to have reservations or to be organized with other planners, other civil servants to actually have control over how those those new technologies are integrated into the job uh, to make sure that it's not in a way that is undermining your job security as a planner. Yeah, I think just put that in the bucket of they didn't really get it, but they talked about it. Yeah. I, I would say if there is like a perspective that seems to come through more, it is more the idea of like viewing the world from the perspective of an employer, from a capitalist, just in the sense that when it actually comes to their primary audience here of planners, it's all about this is what is happening. It's going to happen and you should prepare for it. Let's not talk about fighting against it. Yeah, that's a really good way to frame it. I think that it is from the point of view of a steward of capital, mm-hmm. and the planners are just just have to let it wash over them. Yeah, and that is the type of planning that I hate the most. Absolutely. I think a planner, I think the only way to be a good planner is to challenge the issues like you it's this whole report is very much 
being an observer, you know, it's just like be a, a distant neutral role, but uh, that's not what a planner is like a planner. What, I mean, there's just no point in calling yourself a planner, even like a plan takes bravery and, and boldness. And it, it requires you to say, this is the problem and this is how we'll fix it uh, rather than just creating a list of things that happen. And this is something that I've thought about that public sector unions could actually exert influence over. You see this with teachers' unions, and the right will try to paint teachers' unions as anti-student, anti-child, because it's like, oh, they're striking, they don't want to teach, they hate your kid, blah, blah, blah. But the things that teachers are fighting for in their strikes are pretty much always to the benefit of the kids, and specifically with mm -hmm. the students in mind. And I think the same could be said for planners in terms of if we had organized civil servants, if we had organized planners, there is a labor angle to exerting influence over the power of developers in a city, you know? Mm -hmm. But that's not even on the table here. I think the APA's lack of direction is a good segue into the last chapter we're going to talk about. Mm -hmm. which is titled Moving Towards a Polycrisis. So polycrisis is a term that I had seen a while back, but I didn't. I guess I didn't remember its exact origins. When I looked it up today, it's from a French sociologist who was a Marxist, but by the time he wrote it, he, uh, he I guess, had adopted additional ideologies, but I wouldn't say he abandoned Marxism. Anyway, he had this theory that the crisis we face is actually several independent crises that conflict with each other and also act independently. What it's spun out into today is it's a more of a centrist idea that we have all these different crises at the same time because there's nothing that motivates them or directs them there is no force that can be described it is just chaos and i do think that capitalism is chaotic but the crises that are created by capitalism are more systemic or i'm just now i'm being too wordy but uh they're the result of decisions right decisions yeah the, that's the state's role in preserving capitalism are these other crises. When I first saw them use polycrisis, I was, I was thinking, this is weird, because to talk about the polycrisis, you would have to be an anti-capitalist. But reflecting on like how the word has transformed today, it makes a lot of sense for the APA to address or to mention the polycrisis, because people who believe in the polycrisis don't believe that there is an origin which... Marxists, leftists would describe as the profit motive, that we have all these crises because of the way our economy is organized. And if the APA had that understanding, this chapter would have been interesting. <laughs> but instead, it's just a list of the horrors of living on Earth and watching the Earth die before us. Yeah. The absurdity of placing climate change and homelessness and the other like very real crises that the APA, I think, accurately describes in many instances here. And then as we'll see in the bonus episode, placing those crises next to space travel and chat GPT interviewing itself and 3D printed houses and lab grown milk, like just these weird and it's not to say that any of those topics aren't worth talking about, but it just, I mean, I feel like this chapter more than most just kind of like puts you in a really dark place. Yeah. Because nothing about this report really galvanizes you to the level of action that is required to actually address the crises that we're facing. Yeah. There is hope. There's always hope, I think. And... There are a lot of, I think, examples still of genuinely good things happening in the world, people organizing, getting together. And, you know, even in the realm of like climate change and like 
what the Biden administration, like, what is it, Climate Defiance? I don't know. Have you heard of them? I haven't. They're a very cool group. They are a direct action group where they disrupt events where really, really influential people are speaking. So like they've disrupted events of Joe Manchin's. They recently disrupted, I think, an event where was it the CEO of like Citibank, one of like the really big banks, which is one of the top investors in fossil fuels. They disrupted an event where uh, he was speaking and like, you know, basically they chased him off the stage and all of that. And uh, they've been so disruptive that they actually got a meeting at the White House. And after that, the Biden administration stalled plans for this massive natural gas terminal out of Houston. Uh, that would have set us on a course for, you know, just like locked us into to more carbon emissions for decades to come, or at least an inappropriate amount of time, to say the least. Like, there are opportunities here, as easy it is, as it is at this point in this report and in general to kind of like think about the death of the planet. I don't think we're necessarily actually in that position if we make the choices not to be. And I think there are a lot of opportunities to get involved in a way that steers the direction away from the worst catastrophic outcomes. But you won't find those in this report. You won't. And uh, I, I fully agree. I think that doing nothing would be what the APA would want you to do. So don't do that. We still have time to make the future better. And there's simply no reason to dwell on what has been lost to the point that you become inactive. Don't let an unproductive nihilism set in. Understand the challenges that we're up against, yes, but also understand that it's worth fighting for a better world and that a better world is possible. This is something as socialists we've been saying for decades, and it's just as true now as it's always been. I fully agree. Do you have any final thoughts, Josh, about this APA report? Do you have any final thoughts? Hmm. Head empty. <laughs> uh, no, I got to have something. I think the only thoughts I would, I would want to share are perhaps for younger listeners, um, people who aren't planners yet, but maybe are thinking about it. Uh, just that you can avoid this stuff. Like, you don't need to... The APA doesn't have to be a source for you. You know, in grad school and undergrad, they're probably going... Your professors are probably going to guide you towards, like, becoming a member or thinking that, like, being active in this group is productive to the profession. But I would urge you to maybe think about that a little bit harder, um, make your own decision. But there are other ways to advance progressive planning. I don't think working from within the APA will ever yield anything that is actually helpful. Yeah. Uh, I, I gotta be honest, like the APA barely intersects with my life. I'm not an APA member. The only time I ever intersect with the APA is, I think, like I said before, is as a job board. And that's free. That's free. The only other thing that I'll say is just that should this pop in front of anybody who is involved in writing this report. Understand, you know, we're not being petty or critical just for the sake of being critical. The APA has more influence than perhaps any other planning organization over the mm -hmm. profession and merits criticism, merits critical engagement with the ideas that they put forward and the reports and content that they put out into the world. They are the most visible planning organization by far. And I think putting forward alternative perspectives to the things that they put out is important. They aren't the only organization, though. Planners Network um, is a progressive left-wing network of planners, practitioners, and academics that you can look into. If you want, like, articles, ideas, inspiration, their publication called Progressive City would be a fantastic alternative to the Trend Report. Yes. And that's, I think, really important for us to say is like, there are actual alternatives out here that, that, that exist sort of in opposition to what the APA puts out. Whether, and I don't want to say planners network, I don't want to put words into their mouth or anything as like being explicitly opposed to the APA. I'm not quite sure if they would say that, but they certainly offer like a, a very different perspective. And that's always what we want to be building here, right? Is a, mm -hmm. a positive vision of the future and putting forward opportunities to get involved in something different 
We're not just sitting here critiquing for the sake of critiquing, you know. I can be petty, absolutely. <laughs> uh, but it, it would feel really bad if it just stopped there. So, I think we both have a body of work that is evidence we're seeking real solutions. Yes, yeah. Well, that is it for the free episode. In the bonus episode, we're going to talk about the goofier sides of this APA report. So stay tuned until the end of the episode if you want to hear a snippet of that. The Patreon is patreon.com slash zonedoutpodcast where you can subscribe for $2 per month and gain access to bonus episodes, live streams, early episode access, and other benefits. Josh's YouTube is Radical Planning. Zoned Out is on Instagram at zoned underscore out underscore pod and Tumblr at zonedoutpodcast.tumblr.com. Josh, what is uh, your Twitter handle? It's rad, R-A-D underscore planner. Awesome. Here's a sneak peek of the bonus episode. Take care, everybody. Thanks. And they talk about growing plants in outer space. Somebody on this team is just fixated on space. Space is really cool. Sure. But why here? Like, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, just the planning profession. Like, this is for urban planners. The vast majority of urban planners, like, in our lifetime, I don't think will have much to do with outer space planning. I don't think we would ever be involved. I don't think... Yeah. I don't think the government would ever ask a planner how to colonize the moon. It would always be engineers <laughs> or... Yeah, engineers. Only engineers. McKinsey consultants yeah. every time. Yeah. We don't know how to do this. That's And that's fine. <laughs> like, I, yeah. I don't know what to do with the moon. I just... <laughs> I just... Honestly, I'm just like, leave the moon alone. Yeah. It regulates the tides. It helps keep us in orbit, I think. It's so beautiful. Yeah. Just like, let her be. It's okay. I do cackle at the idea, though, of like growing food on the moon. I know they're more talking about like space stations and stuff, but like, okay, so if you go into Des Moines on I-80 from the west, 1,000 Friends of Iowa has four signs up on like a, a plot of farmland as you're getting into like the Des Moines exurbs. And currently they say something about like buying local. But back in the day, and I'm talking like when I was a kid, they would say urban sprawl sure ain't pretty. Save our farms, build in the city. <laughs> and I, <laughs> this, it's cute. It's 1,000 friends. Like, I mean, it's, it's a nice little message. Uh -huh. um, the signs have like little, I don't know, had little farmlands and I think like a pig on them. But I'm losing my mind thinking about like 1,000 friends of the moon just oh putting God. up the same signs outside like a moon base 14, like stop urban sprawl, protect our lunar farmland. <laughs> yeah, would we replicate sprawl on the moon is a question we cannot answer and probably shouldn't think about, but... I think it's time for us to talk about the space section. One of my questions is, what is walkability in low gravity <laughs> yeah are you getting anything out of that i don't like know a, a, is that exercise are they are they yeah. exhausted when they hop around <laughs> is anyone alive who has been to the moon when was the last time we went to the moon these are these are questions i should have researched but now now the wheels are spinning now i am thinking about the moon there are people well i know there are people who have been to space who are alive certainly yeah so there is a chapter I think uh, you should put reverb on our voice for this okay. whole section. <laughs> There's a chapter called The New Space, which I don't quite understand, but um, it is about opportunities in general, not just for planning, but opportunities about space. We love opportunities. We love opportunities. opportunities. It's the second to last chapter. And like we've said, they have been hinting at it a lot. Like they have brought up space quite a bit mm -hmm. and it's just such a bizarre thing to add yeah this is a persistent pattern for them it's not just the 2024 trend report like they start off by saying recent years have seen a revival in space activities as highlighted in the 2022 and 2023 trend reports it's every trend report they just keep talking about space mm -hmm. i love space i love to talk about space it is not relevant to the planning profession at this point Maybe that'll change in a decade or two. But like we've said time and again, the juxtaposition of colonizing Mars 
with 650,000 homeless people in the United States. Mm -hmm. In the same report, just wild. Yeah, I always think about this, like, why are groups like the APA so eager to build a movement to do the impossible, right? To, like, prepare the future of planners to colonize the moon. But they're completely unwilling to mobilize and, like, solve these, like, I would describe them as pretty pretty small things that have huge impacts, like the Fair Cloth Amendment mm-hmm. and budgeting issues. Like, why why is the energy devoted to something that doesn't matter? Yeah, I know I said earlier it was the housing section, but honestly, the this entire report is literally just over and over again saying anything but public housing, anything but public housing. Please don't yeah. make us talk about public housing. Well, yeah, they're they're very excited about NASA funding the private sector. Like that's said twice in the beginning. Oh my God, yeah. They literally say NASA now funds and contracts with the private sector. This billionaire-backed progress is a significant <sighs> change and experts hope it continues as the industry needs audacious innovators and financial resources. The industry doesn't need anything. This is superfluous. <laughs> it's like, well... I mean, I think we absolutely should have like space exploration and like research in this area. Like, yeah, I and I mean, because like, I mean, it's it's a meme that I learned, you know, growing up. But it's like, yeah, NASA is responsible for a lot of like the technology that we have in our everyday lives. Like the thing is, is like this idea that we need like SpaceX to do that is absurd. Like it's The only reason that that is happening is because of austerity, because of like a defunding of NASA, particularly as a result of the fall of the Soviet Union. And so we didn't have like a a competitor in the space in the same way anymore. anymore. So now I always return to is like, what is the value add of the private sector? It's like, do we need audacious billionaire investors or do we like, do we just need to tax billionaires more uh, rather than giving them contracts that they then skim money off the top of? Mm hmm. Like, this feels like a less efficient approach to space research and exploration. And tourism. <laughs> tourism. Space tourism. Of course. <laughs>